This is Changing Channels with Larry Walsh, the Channelnomics podcast that connects you with channel chiefs, thought leaders, and executives about what it takes to get the next generation of tech to market. Here's your host, Larry Walsh, the CEO and Chief Analyst of Channelnomics. Hello, everyone. I'm Larry Walsh, and welcome to a special edition of Changing Channels. Uh, typically, we devote this podcast to talking with industry thought leaders about, about different strategies and getting technology products to market. Um, this, though, is a different topic, one that I really never thought we'd be discussing here uh, on Changing Channels, which is about war and specifically about the war in Ukraine. Um, the war in Ukraine is truly reshaping everything, everything we've known for at least the past 30 years in terms of economics, trade, and market conditions. Uh, and it's something that's not going to be rolled back quickly or easily. Um, the last time I had to worry about Russians invading another European country or a land war in Europe, I looked like this. Um, I kind of don't even recognize that guy, but I was a soldier in the U.S. Army. I served in Germany for several years at the end of the Cold War. I was in Germany the night the Berlin Wall fell. I was not in Berlin, but I was there and I was able to watch the exuberation of, of the Cold War coming to an end. Um, as Francis, Francois Fukushima said, it was the end of history, or more specifically, a better way of saying that is that it was the beginning of a new chapter of history, uh, and one where war, at least war that we feared through the 80s, uh, is being unprecedented, if not obsolete. Um, the war in Ukraine is bad. And this is a recent uh, depiction of, of what's happening in Ukraine. The Russians basically control the Donbass, Crimea, and much of the Black Sea coast. They have withdrawn from the uh, Kyiv region, um, or they're in the process of, they have troops still in Belarus, uh, and, but the situation is still very serious. And part of the reason why many military analysts, and, and I'm gonna say right now, I am not an expert on this. I'm an enthusiast. I'm a student of military history. Um, I, I, at one point in my life, I wanted to be a politician and a diplomat. Uh, so this is very much a, a keen interest of mine. But just think about me as just being more of a reporter than trying to pass off expertise. Uh, because this is truly about uh, trying to understand and make sense of what is happening from our lens of the technology industry and specifically the channel. But if you listen to the analysts that actually know what they're talking about on this stuff, the reason why they're so concerned about the Ukraine war escalating is because of this red line. Now, we've all heard about how the Russians want to take Ukraine. Uh, they want to, if they don't want to, to annex it, they, wouldn't, they want to install a more friendly government towards, um, towards Moscow and make it more of a, of a satellite of the, of the Russian Federation. But Analysts will tell you is that Russians have grave security concerns based on their history. Uh, they call them the nine gates, and those are the open spaces along the Russian border that will allow evading armies to come in. And two of those gates are right here in front of us, and they go through the Polish plain and the gap in the Carpathian Mountains in Romania. 
And so that red line is where the Russians really see their security zone or their minimum security zone. And that passes through several, uh, uh, several NATO countries, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, not to mention that all the Baltic countries are behind it, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. So this really does, if the, you know, if, if the, the war continues to go on and if it even expands and the Russians' ambitions are even bigger than what we see today, this is probably more of what their worldview looks like. Now, the war did prompt a, a really res resolute and stiff response from the West. In addition to the unprecedented sanctions, we'll talk more about that in a moment, um, the technology, as well as other Western corporations, um, the technology industry really did speak in unity. Um, more than 600 companies have withdrawn from the Russian market. Uh, they've either pulled out entirely or they've suspended their operations. Microsoft, Cisco, Oracle, Apple, Samsung, HPE, HP, and the list goes on. And more are coming even you know, you know, every day still. I mean, you know, just uh, last week, um, Yale University published a list of companies that hadn't done anything in terms of responding to the Russian invasion. And that prompted more to pull back. So there is an unprecedented private sector response to what's happening. And it does affect all of us. I will tell you is that I've been talking with resellers and integrators and distributors inside of Ukraine to this, you know, that are still there now. Um, I've spoken, I speak to them on a, you know, I, at the beginning of the war, I was trying to talk with them on a daily basis. And nowadays I'm talking with them maybe on a once a week, you know, they're kind of busy, um, but they are really resolved in, in continue, you know, taking the fight to the Russians. Um, and some of these companies, they are, they, you know, they're trying to maintain normal operations because they still have to support their families. They still have to have some semblance of an economy, even in wartime. So what's the impact on business? And the impact, and I'm gonna start by talking about business and economies writ large. I think it's important for us to understand where the war is really taking, having a toll today. And then we'll get into what that's gonna look like in the future. So first, let's just talk about uh, the Russian sanctions. Uh, as I mentioned, the Western, Western countries, NATO countries, uh, countries that are more Westernized and aligned with NATO, such as Switzerland, Sweden, Finland, uh, Austria, uh, and even in the Far East, Asia, uh, in the Far East and Asia, where uh, Japan and Korea and Australia and New Zealand joined in with the United States and Canada to impose unprecedented sanctions on the Russian economy. Really what they're trying to do is they're trying to suck the oxygen out of the room so that you know, the Russian economy shrinks and Putin does not have the financial resources to prosecute the war. Um, th this goes well beyond uh, the, the seizing of oligarchs yachts and cutting off from SWIFT. They are really trying it, you know, almost it seems like every few days they're coming up with new sanctions to just put a stranglehold on the economy. Um, that is having a collateral impact though, because you want to start constraining trade. That means that the things that we trade with become in short supply. And one of those is grain. And this is going to become an important point of this conversation as we go on. Russia is the world's largest grain exporter, uh, 37 million metric tons in 2020. 
Ukraine is the fifth largest exporter, 18 million tons, and the two of them together produce nearly a quarter of the world's grain, you know, wheat stock. So this is the, this is the stuff we feed um, livestock with. It's also what we make bread with. Uh, just to give you an example of how the impact is, you know, how this is already impacting food supplies, Ukraine is the fourth largest exporter of corn in the world. And 15% of their last harvest is rotting in silos because they can't get it to market. Their ports are under siege. So they can't, they typically ship this out via ship uh, on uh, ocean ships. Uh, but those ports are under siege, as we know. Uh, the only port, the only deep water port they have open right now is Odessa, and that's under frequent attack. They just can't turn it onto rail and ship it out through the uh, through the Western borders because the Ukrainian rail lines, much like the Russian rail lines, are incompatible with Western standards. So there's a lot of, you know, this is going to be, this is a real telltale sign of how this is going to impact the exports coming from, um, coming from these two countries. Um, this is also, the war is going to lead to a fertilizer, fertilizer shortage. Russia and Belarus, the other country we don't talk enough about in this conflict, uh, Russia's ally, uh, the two of these company, countries produce 38% of the world's uh, potassium chloride or potash. This is the stuff fertilizer is made of. Now, that's not to say that they, you know, fertilizer isn't made in other countries. You know, Canada is actually the world's largest uh, producer of potash. Um, it's just that these two countries produce a lot of it, and it goes across Europe, it goes across Africa and the Middle East. And it's, these two countries also represent the world's largest supply or the world's largest reserves of recoverable and equivalent supply of potash. So disrupting supplies coming out of these two countries is really going to have a worldwide impact on agriculture. Now, You've all probably heard about the energy dependence Europe has on Russian oil and gas. Well, this is a map of the pipelines of how gas and oil comes east to west into Europe, into the major industrial countries of Europe. You know, specifically Germany, Italy, and France have a huge dependency on imported energy. Um, Russian de energy dependence in Europe is high. Europe imports 40% of its natural gas from Russia. Now, Oil can be replaced, and they're already shifting their supply lines and where they're sourcing oil from uh, to for outside of Russia. But it's the natural gas part that it's the real problem. Is that because all those pipelines deliver natural gas in, which you know, which is also a sign of how Europe does not have liquefied natural gas infrastructure. So it's not like the U.S., which is a net exporter of of natural gas, can just backfill the needs because there's just not the infrastructure there. Um, they're working on it and it's gonna take some time before that becomes available, uh, but it really does put a lot of countries at risk. Uh, they're highly exposed, uh, you know, specifically two countries, Germany is the fourth largest economy in the world. Italy is the eighth largest economy in the world, economy in the world. And they are also highly energy dependent on, on Russian gas. So just look at these NATO countries and Finland's in here because they are you know, even though they're neutral, they're highly cooperative with NATO. Na uh, Finland gets 97% of its gas from Russia, Germany 49%, Italy 46%, but Latvia 93%, Bulgaria 77%. I mean, you turn off the gas and you're turning off more than just heating and cooking, you're turning off industry. 
And we're already hearing about this with the Germans because they're because of their high uh, industrial uh, industrialized base and their dependency has already got them talking about how they may have to ration gas supplies if Russia starts to pull back on fulfilling the orders. Uh, and increasingly, these countries are under a huge pressure to stop buying Russian energy products uh, because it is fueling the war in Ukraine. The other gas that needs to be talked about is neon. Now, Ukraine is the world's largest producer of neon, and you may say that, well, okay, so we don't have a few more signs and bars. Well, it's more than that. Neon is an essential element for the, in the production of semiconductors. And you know this is one of those things that really does affect us as an industry. Um, we're already seeing that you're already seeing some uh, constraints you know, emerging in pr uh, production capacity around semiconductors because of a lack of neon. Um, the semiconductor uh, segment of our industry is highly at risk. Demand was already outstripping supplies uh, even before the war and even before the pandemic. Going back to 2019, we were talking about how the, there was not enough chips in the supply chain to satisfy the market need. Then the pandemic came along and everybody needed new electronics for working from home and that only exacerbated the problem. And now we have this war which is really gonna constrain the, uh, the ability for producers. And this is not gonna get fixed easily. Um, Intel has announced that they're gonna be building a 20 $20 billion facility in Ohio. Um, that's going to help. It's going to help eventually, but that's still, you know, replacement expanded capacity is still years away. And even if we had the raw materials, and which that's not to say that we don't have them, they, 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 oftentimes it's just because they're not in the right place. But let's just say that even if raw materials was not a problem, the semiconductor supply chain is highly at risk. Why? Because a lot of these, a lot of these products are made, these components are made in Asia. And a wild card in all this, and I'm going to say this again in, in a minute, but a wild card in this entire conflict is what China does. And if China decides to lend more support to the Russians, uh, inclusive of disrupting of trade and supply coming out of the manufacturing base in southern China, or even interrupting the, the flow of goods coming out of Taiwan or Korea or Japan, that could have great ramifications for the entire technology segment in the western part of the world. So let's shift gears and let's talk about the economic outlook, because this is important. How does all of this affect us as an economy and us as an industry? Well, let's talk about what we were seeing before the war. And 2021, the recovery was happening. We were seeing the world emerge from the pandemic. And that was a good thing. Now, that did come with inflation, and inflation is a problem, but we did see strong economic growth last year. And we anticipated that the economy, the global economy, was going to grow about three and a half to four and a half percent this year. That was a good indicator that, that things were going to get better, even if we did have high inflation. Now, the, uh, you know, if you look at this through a longer lens, then you'd see this moderating out over the next 10 years. And there's a reason for this because the, the, you know, the error of big growth, economists have been saying, was already in decline. Uh, 
And we are going to be moving more towards a qualitative growth cycle, meaning that we would be we would be looking more at optimizing our economies and our infrastructure rather than growing new economies, which would come with higher rates of growth. And that's why I'd see that overall the you know that the global economy would probably expand about two to three and a half percent over the next decade. Uh, more mature markets would be closer to around two, you know, one to two percent growth. Not bad for the more mature areas. Uh, even some of the emerging markets would see lesser growth about, you know, China, which has been growing at six to eight percent annually, slowing down to three and a half percent. So this was we did have a long term optimal view of economic growth. Then the war came. And all the sanctions and the ramifications of the, the, the collateral impact of what I was just talking about in terms of food supplies and energy supplies and how that's impacting inflation. Well, economists tell us that that's going to cost the cost of opposing the war is about one to two percent in growth meaning that our economies are not going to grow at the rates we thought they were. Now, they're still going to grow. It's not to say that it is, you know, that it's going to co completely wipe everything out, but it does slow things down tremendously. This Now, the current forecast is, is that the global economy will only grow about 1.5% this year. Um, the U.S. economy will slow down to about 1% growth. Europe may go into a recession relatively soon, and the rest of the world will be about 1% to 2.5%. You know, this is a big deal because it means that our forecasts, it also means that our expectations for growth, it means our profitability are all at risk. And this goes beyond, inflation is a contributing factor, but this goes beyond the inflation. This is going to be about, you know, about everything that comes with, you know, with the opposition to what's happening in Ukraine to trying to keep the Russians from fueling their economy and fueling their war machine. The... Uh, there is a lot of growing concern around where the economy is going, both on a regional and a global basis. The CEO confidence is down eight points. It's still largely in the majority of CEOs believe the economy is healthy and will continue to grow. However, um, going down eight points shows that it's in a downward direction. Consumer confidence, despite the recent increases in fuel and food prices, is still relatively good but shaky. They, you know, it, that actually could start to trend down uh, as the war and the impact of the war continues to go on. Uh, there's a growing expectation of recession. Now, a recession means two negative, two consecutive quarters of, of decline, meaning that no, you're not growing, but actually contraction in the economy. And we could find ourselves by some estimates, we could be in a recession as early as the summer. Most economists expect the recession will come next year. Um, and there's some that actually say it won't come until 2024, 2025. I don't wanna overstate this. It's just an accelerate. This is an acceleration of what was being anticipated anyways. And why do I say that? It's because there's a lot of money thrown into the economy during the pandemic. That's what caused the inflation initially uh, before the war. So all those inflation spikes we we're seeing that seven and a half, seven and a half percent of inflation rate uh, was due to the pandemic spending. And that, you know, that meant we were eventually going to hit a recession because that, that's going to come back event. You know, what goes up comes down eventually. The war is only going to exacerbate that. Um, and again, the wild card in all this is what does China do? If China decides that it wants to aid the Russians more, we may end up imposing sanctions on them. They will then reciprocate with constriction of trade, and that will just make the economic conditions uh, even more tenable. 
there are casualties, economic casualties already. Now, we're only seven weeks into the war, but we are already seeing the impact. The Russian and the Ukrainian tech industries are decimated. Uh, the Russians are experiencing this brain, a brain drain. By some estimates, 300,000 professionals, mostly technologists, have left Russia because they don't approve of the war. They don't want to live under the, um, the tightening social policies, the, the constraint on speech. Um, and that's just causing, and they can see, you know, many of them, if you watch the news, many of them are giving interviews saying they can see where this is going. They would prefer to be in more friendly, open countries like they find in, in Europe as well as North America. Um, the Russians have seized assets left behind by uh, left behind by Western companies. They've also invalidated trademarks. Um, they are, you know, some of the businesses that I, that I noted earlier that ceased operations in Russia, while well, they're still in operation there and still operating under the same brand. Um, remember that companies are actually, you know, not global. They operate subsidiaries and those subsidiaries are legal entities onto themselves within respective countries. And so they're still in there, they're operating. They're just disconnected from the motherships. Um, and so that means a lot of IP is being lost and being drained of this. Well, it's also denying the, while also denying the Russians of support to new materials, new IP, uh, new resources. Uh, there are a lot, the number of executives that are under threat. Uh, and I will tell you, I've been to Russia several times. I've done work with Russian companies. Uh, I've heard the stories of, of the knocks on the door from the tax police coming to get payment on some mysterious missed bill. Um, to have executives being threatened with arrest because they're, they're not supporting the Russian economy or they're, they're pulling their companies out of, um, out of Russia comes as no surprise. Supply chains are being rerouted, uh, and, and if you look at the you know, uh, FlightAware, which is a great app for tracking flights, there's no flights over Russia, very few flights, because it's, it's a no-fly zone now. It's that it's, the airspace has been closed, the commercial traffic, which means all that air traffic has to go around. It's adding two to four hours of travel time for both uh, passenger and uh, cargo planes, and that's adding the fuel cost. So the cost of shipping is going to go up as supply chains get rerouted. Uh, there's going to be slowdowns in manufacturing because of raw material disruptions and energy disruptions. And you know, just watch. The country to watch in all of this is Germany, because if they do not get the energy supplies that they need, it will cripple their economy, and that will have a ripple effect around Europe. So the current forecast. As I said, the cost of sanctions is going to cost the world about 1% to 2% in uh, GDP growth. Inflation is, you know, the economists, our friends at the conference board tell us inflation is going to be remain between 2 and 2.5% 2 above the Federal Reserve's target rate. And the Fed's target rate is 2 to 2.5%. 2 so hopefully the inflation rate will actually come down in that scenario, but it's still substantially higher than they want it to be. There's gonna be increases in, in commodity prices, food and raw materials, and that's gonna have an increase in other finished, uh, pricing increases in other finished goods. And as I said, there's gonna likely be a recession in the US and Western Europe. And there's also gonna be collateral economic damage in the Mediterranean countries, Middle East and Africa. Um, I remember that for a minute. I'm going to come back to that and connect the dots for you on grain and what this means in terms of economic damage in this region. So I want to talk to you about what are the possible possible scenarios going forward. 
Um, uncertainty is the enemy of business. It always has been, but you know, currently this is where we have to, you know, we have to get our heads around is that we don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know what impact is going to have on the technology industry or the general economy. We don't know what the war is going to do to the channel. You know, as the Chinese curse goes, may you live in interesting times. And I can't think of a time in recent memory where this is more applicable than perhaps what we just went through with the pandemic, but we knew there was going to be an end to the pandemic and we knew that there was going to be a return to some sense of normalcy. This is not normal. In fact, there are, there are scenarios in which this does get worse because the Russians need an off-ramp. They need a place where they can get to, where they can, they can at least claim some victory internally. That's what they're going to look for. And without that off-ramp, then we, we are going to have uncertainty on where we go next. And there are some places where this could all go. First is Arab Spring 2. And I'll call this one the European edition. So remember I said, watch the Mediterranean basin. What, you know, what's the deal with grain, uh, the grain supplies and grain prices? Well, in 2010, the Russians, again, the world's largest exporter of wheat, had a bad harvest. And what did they do? They cut off exports so they could feed their own people. Not necessarily on a reasonable thing to do. Um, the thing is, is that most of Russian Ukrainian grain goes to the Middle East and Africa, specifically the North African coast, as well as uh, places along the Mediterranean and into the Persian Gulf. So what happened shortly after all this happened? Well, food prices went up. The local governments were unable to soothe over their, their, uh, uh, their populations. And what happened? We had the Arab Spring. And in fact, the analysts, you know, geopolitical analysts have, a, have drawn a direct correlation from the cutting off of Russian exports of wheat to the Arab Spring happening in Tunisia, in Libya, in Egypt, and of course, Syria. Surprise. That's where the Russians went to fight first with Syria. So we could not only just see every, every uh, return to the Arab Spring, but we could also see this happening in Europe too. So the Europeans have been shifting politically right. And part of what's been fueling that right-wing shift has been the influx of refugees from Africa and the Middle East fleeing these war-torn regions. Now you have four and a half million refugees out of Ukraine that are going into European countries. Poland has absorbed most of them, but they're going into Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, Germany, France, and Spain. There's going to be a, there is the potential for a, a political backlash on this, and that could spell further instability. Um, we could also be looking at, and probably at a very minimum, what I'm going to call Cold War II, or even colder. And this is going to cause Western nations to rearm and militarize again, the way we did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, Germany has already announced that it is infusing its, its military forces with 100 billion euros in new funding, and they're committing to spending more than 2% of their GDP on military funding uh, going forward because they have recognized the threat that they're facing from the Russians um, on their eastern flank. So, and NATO itself is, you know, over the past few years, they were being criticized for not spending enough on the military while the U.S. was. Well, NATO has resolved itself to correcting that. Now, why is this going to be a big deal? Well, it means that resources are going to be shifted to the military again, which means they're going to get a lot of pressure on spending. Uh, there's just not going to be money available 
for spending on social programs in climate change and other things that we've been looking forward to doing. Part of what the George Bush, the 43rd president, George Bush, called the peace dividend. And unfortunately, I think that that whatever peace dividend we had in January won't is gone forever. Uh, this is a trend that we've been tracking for about six months now. Economists are talking about this trend of deglobalization and what will ultimately become fragmented trade relations. Um, again, this is one of the things that we learned in the pandemic is that while offshoring and outsourcing manufacturing around the world made sense for the last 30 years and it saved a lot of money and created jobs and lifted economies in places like China and Southeast Asia, um, it sapped our domestic capacity for meeting emergency needs. And again, during the pandemic with you know, protective uh, equipment and gear, we just didn't have the ability to make it. And we are wholly dependent on other countries to be able to supply it to us. And you know, again, the pandemic showed us China was making PPE for itself first and then maybe come and ship it to us. It made things very difficult for the US in the early stages of the pandemic. And the correction for that is to repatriate industries and manufacturing capacity. And what does that actually do? It actually takes, it takes income away from other economies. So if you pull manufacturing out of China, what does it do to the Chinese economy? It makes it smaller. And that's gonna cause for a lot of tensions uh, with different countries around the world. This is what I really don't like to talk about, escalation of the de-escalation. This is Russian military doctrine, is that you could use, the Russians could use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine to force the difference, the opposing sides to the table for some uneasy compromise. So the theory goes is that if just the use of one nuclear weapon would be enough to scare the rest of the world into making concessions that would lead to an end to all of this. Now, as I said, this is Russian military doctrine. They actually, they actually incorporate this into their strategic thinking. Um, unfortunately, every war game that's been used, I've been reading about this, every war game that's been done on this doesn't lead to de-escalation. It actually leads to further escalation. And then we get to, then we get to World War III. And this is a small possibility. You know, the, you know, early, early in the, you know, the, you know, the war in Ukraine, Putin put his nuclear forces on alert or special strategic alert or whatever he called it. Um, that was to, you know, that was a signal to the West that, you know, that it was serious. It wasn't that they were anticipating the use of weapons. Uh, in fact, we haven't even seen wide scale use of cyber warfare or, or chemical weapons. Um, but there is a possibility that this could escalate. It doesn't take much to trigger the next world war. It, you know, all it needs is an excursion, an incursion into Poland uh, or into one of the Baltic states. And the next thing you know is that you, you that triggers Article Five in the NATO Charter, and you have to have a response. And once that happens, then you start to see the countries around the world that have been sitting on the sidelines. And well, at that point, they have to make a choice. And once those, once that machinery starts rolling. Once the war machine is moving, it's hard to turn it off. So I don't want to overstate that there is a there is a risk of a third world war, but the risk is there even if it's fractional. Now, at Channelnomics, what do we do? We we advise companies on the way they should be thinking about their strategic uh, direction and how to plan. Well, 
lately we've been talking with them about planning for the unthinkable. Uh, the, in the week or two ahead of the Russian invasion, uh, I started calling around to different companies around the world, just trying to see whether they were worried about what was happening, if they were making plans around what to do if the Russians did invade, uh, if they had any sense of what the impact would be. And I got some tepid responses. Um, if there was any planning or any thinking going on around it, it was typically in the margins and really in hushed tones. And why was that? It was because we were in the fog of disbelief. Um, we actually didn't think a war was possible. We actually thought that this was saber rattling uh, and that Putin would back down and then we, everything would return to some sense of normalcy. Well, obviously that didn't happen and our complacency has been shattered. Um, what we talk about is planning, when we say planning for the unthinkable, is thinking about different contingencies for things that may or that could happen or even if they're unlikely, we have to think them through just in case. So, and I've heard this from companies is that they are now doing contingency planning for things that they never considered before, uh, because it's not that they're within the realm of possibility, but the circumstances in Ukraine has made it, it has necessitated them thinking about things that are even what be on their field of vision. So obviously things around planning around supply chain disruptions and inventory disruptions are a necessity. We know supply chains are going to get disrupted. We just don't know when, where, or how. Um, we have to plan for sustained inflation and sudden price increases. So when the war started, gasoline prices shot up about 25%. We knew oil supplies were going to be disrupted, or at least traders were going to drive up the price of oil. The oil supplies are always tight. There's not a lot of slack capacity, so that's why the prices went up. Food prices are going up dramatically now. And so, you know, as we start to see manufacturing get constrained, supply chains get disrupted, the, the lack of availability in raw materials, we know that there's probably going to be some sudden price increases in our future. What do we do about them? We know there's going to be a general economic downturn or a recession. How bad will it be and what the impact will be and who will it affect? We don't know, but we need to understand. We need to think the, those, the economic issues through so that we have a viable plan in place, uh, or I should say you should have a viable plan in place so you know how to react when the economy goes south. Uh, we're also talking with companies about succession planning and contingency planning. And this is different than what we typically talk about in management succession planning. Uh, what we're talking about is what happens when you lose access to resources? What happens if you get cut off from entire teams? What do you do if you can't reach a team leader or a resource in another country? Now, again, is this likely? It may be or maybe not. But it is not beyond the realm of possibility, particularly in a time of cyber warfare, that you could lose contact with an entire team in Singapore or in Sydney, Australia, that you could be cut off from your working resources, your development resources, or your distributors in some parts of the world. And being able to have the ability for somebody to step into the management void to make decisions, as well as redirect workflows and operations to where you do have access to resources, those lines of communication need to be thought out. As much as the same way has to, that same thinking has to be applied about access to markets and the resources. And the last thing is, is the taking care of people. How do we take care of people in extreme circumstances? 
So I, you know, if you look back a couple of episodes with Changing Channels, we had the CEO of Acronosign. And one of the questions I asked him, because we were talking about how Acronos reacted to the invasion. Uh, and one of the things I asked is that, so if he, what would he tell himself in early February, knowing what he knows now in March at the time about the war? And he says, to be prepared to take care of people under extreme stress. And if you look at what many companies like Acronis are doing, they're trying to help refugees. They're trying to help their own employees who are, who are hosting refugees in their homes. Um, they're trying to extract people from hostile areas. And it is causing huge amounts of emotional strain as well as operational strains. And so we need to be able to understand how to do that better if and when this escalates into other parts of the world. So why do we even talk about this in the first place? Well, Otto von Bismarck, the first chancellor of the German empire said, uh, he said a lot of great things. My favorite quote by, by Bismarck is, is that God has a special place for, for fools, drunkards in the United States of America. Um, but this quote is more appropriate. What we, learn, what we learn from history is that no one learns from history. As I said, Francois Fukushima said that we witnessed the end of history at the end of the Cold War. Um, apparently, we didn't learn our lessons. We thought that war was obsolete. Uh, and in fact, I would even argue that we didn't learn many of the lessons from the pandemic, is that we are still, many companies and many people were still caught unaware of what to do when they were faced with an extreme circumstance like we saw with the invasion of Ukraine. So why is this important? Some, some of you may be listening to this saying, it's something saying, well, does this really have a lot to do with the channel? Does this really have a lot to do with the tech industry? It does and it doesn't. There's a broader message here. There's a broader need that needs to be resolved. We need to learn our lessons and we need to learn them for her. This is Katerina Korichikov. Uh, she is 11 year old Ukrainian She's better known on the internet as the girl with the lollipop. Uh, this photo was taken by her father. I pretty, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was staged. Uh, so, I mean, th that weapon would, would knock her back. But I don't care if it was staged or not. The fact that this photo has context. This girl sitting in a window, a broken window, holding a weapon in Kiev, has context to us all. We all immediately recognize what this means. I have two nieces about her age that I don't ever want to, them to see what this girl has seen and is witnessing and is living through to this day. This is the lesson we need to learn. This is more than just how do we plan for operating in dire economic circumstances or in hostile times. This is about making the world a better place for Katerina and all the children like her. So Channelnomics, has prepared a number of reports uh, and we're making this one about uh, getting uncomfortable with asking questions regarding war available to everyone for free. Please go to channelnomics.com forward slash library and you'll find this report uh, and just use the discount code Ukraine and you'll get it for free. And you can keep checking back. We'll be adding more of these resources as time goes on. This is what we do here at Channelnomics to support our community uh, in times of in times of uncertainty and stress, and saying that this is a time of uncertainty and stress is a is an understatement. So 
please keep checking back with us. Um, we're going to be doing some some regular reports on what's happening in Ukraine and the and the impact on the industry in the world. Uh, but we'll also can be coming back to our regular schedule of Changing Channel podcasts. As always, I appreciate your support. And I appreciate you listening in. Until next time, I'm Larry Walsh. Thank you for joining Changing Channels with Larry Walsh, a production of Channelnomics, with the support of our production team at Modern Podcasting. If you've enjoyed today's episode, hit the like button, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and share with your friends. For more information about Channelnomics services and insights, follow us on Twitter and YouTube, and check out our website at channelnomics.com. Channelnomics is a registered trademark of and Changing Channels is copyright by 2112 Enterprises, LLC.